We continue in our look at the Shorter Catechism, picking up in the First Commandment. We looked at the duties required in the First Commandment, the sins forbidden, and now we're looking at the words before me in the First Commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the Lord says. So now we're looking at that phrase, before me. All right, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 11. Scripture tells us, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? Now, the word hell in the Old Testament refers to a place of incapability of seeing, I think is the root of the word sheol, where you cannot see. Um, similar to Hades, the place where you cannot, awe is not, and Eden is to see or to understand. So Hades is the place where you cannot see. Christ refers to it as outer darkness. It's a place that no man would be able to see or to understand, and yet hell and destruction are right in front of God's face. That's what it's saying. And then it makes a comparison. If this thing that's really hard to see or impossible to see is right before God, what about men? What about our hearts? You think God can't see those? That's the point of the proverb. If God can see in the greatest, most impossible place to see, if he can do the more difficult work, he can certainly do the easier work, which is to discern the hearts of the children of men. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So this is actually a little different. This, the fact that God sees everything is used in Scripture in different ways. We're just looking at that fact right now. But notice... It's used in the first instance we looked at to put the fear of God into us. That God sees your evil intentions, in other words. He'll judge you. But here, Christ uses God's ability to see everything and the fact that he does see all things as an encouragement to fear him and to love our neighbor. So he's using it as a background for the duties of the law, not with respect to men, that we should be seen by them, but knowing that God sees everything, even the things done in secret. So this God seeing all things is an encouragement to the duties of piety and charity, as well as a motive to avoid sinning against God and coming under his judgment by hypocrisy and evil dealings in our hearts, which are open to him and he knows about them anyways. Also, just an interesting sidelight, hypocrisy is a species of atheism, because it, hypocrisy assumes that the most important people watching your actions are whom? Other men. Other men, right? But the actual most important person watching your actions is whom? 
God. So hypocrisy is a species of atheism because it assumes that God doesn't exist and the only people watching are other humans. But in any case, God sees all things. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 21 through 24. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Well, how are we going to know if God actually sent a prophet? You see this in the Old Testament. It describes the false prophets as prophets, doesn't it? It describes Balaam as a prophet. So how do we know if God sent the prophet? How do we know if he didn't? And then he goes on. Verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Okay, so how do you tell if God sent a prophet or if the prophet sent himself? It's a telltale sign. What is it? In the sermon this morning, we give righteousness. Okay. That is true, but what does he say here? What's the indicator the indicator here? What should the prophet say? The word of God. Specifically, those portions of scripture applicable to the circumstances of the people. These people needed to hear repentance. Did they hear that from their prophets? No. So he says, the way you can tell, if they would have stood in my counsel, which I gave to them in my words, that is the Bible, then they would have come to the people and said, listen, God says, don't do these things and turn from these wicked ways, and they would have turned, he says. They they probably also would have said, the false, the true prophets probably also would have said, Right. Now, it's important to understand that the, the role of a prophet is twofold. One is to take the word of God that previously exists and apply it to the circumstances of their time to show forth the word of God. And then the other subservient to that is that they would predict things that were yet future. So prophesy doesn't mean to predict things yet future. It just means to show forth the word of God. And mainly that means... As he says here, standing in the counsel of God, causing the people to hear the words of God, and turning the people from their evil way, from the evil of their doing. So a call to repentance is the mark of a prophet based off of the scriptures. That's the mark of a true prophet. The prediction of future events often verifies the prophetic calling of the prophet. But when Moses says how to tell whether it's a true or false prophet, the predictive sometimes misleads you. Because a false prophet can tell you something that's going to be future and it'll come to pass. But he says that prophet's still supposed to die if he leads you away from the truth revealed about God. So even if his predictions are correct, it doesn't matter. That doesn't make him a true prophet. What makes him a true prophet is, does he declare the word of God? And does he call the people to repent for their particular sins? Okay, so that's the context here. Is the true versus the false prophet. Verse 23. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? 
Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Okay, so the false prophet, running without God sending him, doesn't listen to what God says, because in his view, God is absent. God is not a God at hand. He doesn't see what's going on here on the earth. And therefore, whether the false prophet told himself this explicitly in his mind or not, his actions mean he does believe this. God is absent. And therefore, he doesn't see or hear what we're doing. So we can just assure people that all is well with you. We can tell people what they want to hear. And they, in turn, will reward us. We will be rewarded by men. Remember what Jesus said. You've been seen by men, you have your reward. These false prophets, they've received the money, the reward of divination, and they have their reward. That's all they get. Because they think God is far off. He's not a God at hand. And so God asks them, what do you think? I'm not here. I can't hear you. I don't see this. I don't know what's going on. I don't know that you're falsifying your prophetic office by not speaking according to the scriptures. But then the answer is to have a proper theology. You can't hide in secret places, he says, because I'll see you even in the secret place. And then to top it all off, he shows us that God fills heaven and earth. Just like if you had a glass and you were to pour water into it and it came all the way up to the top and it was full, it would be filled with water. Everywhere you go in heaven and earth, God is there. Now, David talks about if he goes up into heaven, God is there. If he makes his bed in hell, God is there. God is everywhere. He fills heaven and earth. And not just in the sense of like, you could fill something with a portion of you, like your toe, let's say, was in one part of your shoes and your heel was in a different part. No, it's the fullness of who God is, is in every single place. So God's fullness is in every place. This is what we call his omnipresence. And the idea of God seeing all things that the first commandment is referring us to, that's because God is fully present in every place. That's why he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, you will have no God anywhere, not in your heart, not in secret places, because everywhere you go, God says, I am there. James Usher, very good quotation here from his body of divinity. He says, for this word before me or before my face, noteth that inward entertainment and worship, whereof God alone does take notice. And thereby God showeth that he condemneth as well the corrupt thoughts of men's heart concerning his majesty as the wicked practice of the body for our thoughts are before his face. And that's the word actually, before God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Literally means in front of my face. And, and where is God's face? Everywhere. So you shall have no other gods everywhere. That's what he's saying. It's not like you could rank. Sometimes we use the phrase before someone. Like they'll be number two. And this other one will be number one. Is that what he's saying? No. You make me. You can't make me the second God. I have to be number one. Then you could have some other ones after me. No. What he's saying is, you can't have any other gods in my presence, which my presence fills heaven and earth. 
and therefore no other gods anywhere in heaven and earth, especially not in your thoughts. Because we tend to think, because creatures can't see my thoughts, they're safe. No. God can see our thoughts. So we must not have atheistic thoughts as if somehow our reward is from men. Okay. Second page of the handout there. These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. So God takes notice. It's something that is very abhorrent to him. He's much displeased with it. And it entails any other gods. All right, Ezekiel 8. It's a very interesting passage because Ezekiel is out of the land of Judah. He's removed into captivity. But in the visions that God gives him, God brings him to places that he can't see. And then he causes him to see things that otherwise are not visible. But the point is, although Ezekiel the prophet does not see these things without God revealing them to him, guess who's watching the whole time while these evil deeds are going on? God himself. Nothing hidden from him, in other words. Though hidden from Ezekiel the prophet, not hidden from God. So Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 through 18, just some, um, some specific verses out of that passage. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. Okay, so here's the gate that leads into the altar. And what do they have standing there? It's an, it's an image, isn't it? It's a visual representation of some god. But it's called the image of jealousy because he says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I boil up with zeal for my worship. Here you're going into the entryway to my altar and you've set up a graven image. Now God actually had some images in the temple. Did you know that? He had the image of cherubim. He had the image of pomegranates. He had the image of bells. He had various things throughout the temple, but people never ever first went in there. Only the Levites went in there. The people didn't. And when they went in there, did they ever worship those images? Were they commanded to do any kind of reverence, to bow their knee, to bow before it? To offer incense to it? Anything like that? No. Never. Not once. So God here is describing an image that was unauthorized by him. He hadn't said to put it there. And it was something that they offered worship to. And therefore that image evoking us back to the second commandment. Not to make any graven image. Not to bow down to it. Because God's jealous. They must have been bowing to this image. And then down in verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. You could see just a little bit, a little hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So what does he have to do? What does Ezekiel need to do in this vision? He has to dig, doesn't he? He has to look through a hole. 
Then after he's done the work, he can figure it out. But guess who knows what's going on there before Ezekiel gets to see it? God. That's why he's drawing him along and giving him little bits and pieces to show him, look, I've seen this the whole time. No other gods before me. I am displeased with the sin of having any other god. This image provokes me to jealousy. I've seen all the wicked abominations. Now I'm going to show you, Ezekiel. Verse 10. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. This would be uh, paintings, like icons. You have graven images and you have paintings. God hates it all. He doesn't want any of it in his worship. Verse 12. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Okay, we we went into captivity. All the Jews were removed. There's a couple of people left here in Jerusalem. God has left us. He's out of here. Now, in a sense, that's true. God has a favorable presence, and God has an angry presence. So the favorable presence, where was it? Was it with the Jews in Jerusalem in the temple? No, he had forsaken them. His wrath and his fury was poured out on them. So they misinterpret that to be, God can't see what's going on here. We have little imageries in these chambers We have little images painted everywhere and God can't see it. We can do this in the dark without being noticed by God. Verse 17. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo... They put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare. Now that's ironic, isn't it? He's been talking to Ezekiel about seeing the things that they do, hasn't he? And God sees everything. But when he looks on them, his eye, his vision is not going to be a friendly vision, is it? He's not going to look on them favorably. His eye will be to punish them. His eye will see them in order to curse them. Then he says, Neither will I have pity, and though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Much like Proverbs 1, right? They will cry when their calamity comes. They'll seek me early, and I won't answer them. I'm not going to hear them. They've decided they're going to go their own way. They're going to provoke me to anger with their graven images. They're going to turn away and pretend like I can't see them. And I'm going to show you, Ezekiel, all the abominations of these people that they do in secret, thinking that no one sees them. But God, he takes notice of this, doesn't he? He's very displeased with this. And he judges the house of Israel for provoking him to anger. And then finally, Psalm 44, verses 20 and 21 The psalmist teaches us here, If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, 
Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. So here again, this is actually an encouragement. This passage is an encouragement. Verse 22 is where Paul gets the phrase, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter from Romans 8. He gets it from verse 22. This is a protestation in Psalm 24. Though we've been broken in the habitation of of dragons, yet we have not dealt falsely in your covenant. But if we had, we're taught to say, if we had forgotten God, if we had violated the first commandment by stretching out our hands to a strange God, that is, giving religious gestures to graven images. That's what that means. There's no such thing as another God. But it's a reference to the images, the graven or painted images by which people offer religious gestures. Stretching out of the hand is a religious gesture, like when you pray, in other words. If you pray to a graven image, God will search that out. We haven't done that, he says. We have not set up images and offered religious actions toward those graven images. But if we did, God would search it out because all the secret thoughts that you have inside of your heart or the actions that you do in secret places, God sees those things. And so, that's much like what Proverbs 15 said. If hell and destruction are before God's face, how much more what we think in our hearts, the reverence or honor we have for another God or for a creature in the loo or place of God, God will see that. God will be displeased and he will not let it slide. That's why God mentions that in the first commandment because it's one of those sins that all of us come into the world with. I want a different God. I'm not content with the God who's revealed himself, with the God who actually exists. I'm going to reject his knowledge and pursue my own ways. And so God warns us here of this very grievous sin.